Hello, and welcome back to Ed Choice Chats, and specifically, what's up with Mike McShane? I'm Mike McShane, Director of National Research at Ed Choice, and today we are blessed by the presence of a repeat podcast guest. I don't think, I assume on other Ed Choice podcasts, we've had the same people on multiple times, but I think either on my Cool Schools podcast or now that it has morphed into What's Up, I don't think I've ever interviewed someone twice. Maybe a Gimlet-eyed listener could go back and find it, but I don't think that that's taken place. So if I was going to pick someone to be a repeat guest, it would be our guest today. Today, I'm going to talk to Kelly Smith, the founder and CEO of the Prenda Microschools. We're going to spend some time talking about Prenda because it's fascinating. He was on last on the podcast in June of 2020 which if anyone else listening to this feels like an absolute lifetime ago, I just like can't even imagine what has happened in the intervening times. But we'll spend a little time talking about what he's learned and what Prenda's learned in that time period. But we're also going to talk about his new book. It is called A Fire to be Kindled. And it's a lot of his, I think, kind of educational philosophy, thinking about the sort of underlying ethos of Prenda and how he looks at it. And for someone who's now, he started Prenda back in 2018. He's had a lot of time to think about what schools can look like, what schools should look like, what learning can look like. And I'm excited to talk to him about it so he can share that. So without further ado, this is my conversation with Kelly Smith. So Kelly, I think you may be my first repeat podcast guest. We've done a little bit of a rebrand. I believe the last time you're on, we were calling this Cool Schools. And now it's What's Up? But the vibes are basically the same talking to interesting people who are doing interesting things. And you were on, I was looking back, I think you were episode for all of our Ed Choice Chats, 190 in June of 2020. It is now June of 2023. I think this episode, when it comes out, will be episode like 377 or something. So we've been talking to lots of people. And then, so maybe I would love to start using these as kind of brackets. Thinking back to June of 2020 to now June of 2023, Brenda, the work that you all have done, what has happened in that intervening time? What has happened in these crazy three years? Mike, it's great to be back. I really appreciate you guys having me here and love the work you're doing. So thanks for all 300 and however many podcasts you've done. It's a wonderful work and you're adding so much value to this world. It's an exciting time, as I think everybody knows. So, you know, for listeners that maybe don't remember, Prenda started in my house with a micro school of seven students around my table. And one of those was my kid and friend's kids. That was 2018. And so by the time you and I talked, the world had already shifted in one like macro crazy way, which was COVID-19 and traditional schools had closed and parents were desperate. They were all looking for answers, looking for solutions, many of them banding together in creative ways to form these pods and micro schools in their houses, just like I had done in 2018. So Prenda was happy to be a provider or a support during that crazy time. We definitely felt all kinds of stress and strain. And I'm sure you can hear it in my voice if you go back to those moments. You know, the doors were open, but the doors were being beaten down, right? We were seeing lots of interest, lots of people coming in at that time. And it was an exciting, exciting moment, even though, you know, the world was in a terrible crisis around the pandemic. I would say, you know, three years later, so things, you know, come and go, schools reopen. A lot of people kind of went back as parents to what they were used to. You know, there's a lot of things besides engaging as an empowered learner that are delivered through a traditional school and parents like all of those things. So 
wasn't surprising to see that some of those people that had come in and done micro schools in 2020 ended up going back to different settings afterwards. And so Prenda's overall reach and numbers went down a little bit post pandemic, but that was an opportunity for us then to learn from that and build what's needed to really enable people anywhere to open micro schools. And it's been fascinating to see. We got several opportunities that came up during the pandemic, specifically states like New Hampshire and Colorado, and we had to do some work in Kansas and Louisiana. We met people all over the country that were thinking this way. We were able to work together with them to create microschool experiences for kids. So that was fascinating. We continue to want to reach as many as we can. It's all about the mission for me of empowering learners and microschools are a great way to do it. I would say what's interesting that we're three years later and also in the middle of a huge macro shift in the way education is happening in America. This one's less visible to your mainstream parent. They might not be thinking about it, but I'm sure your listeners know about this movement of school choice policies that's really sweeping the nation. Arizona passed a universal ESA program that gives the funding for education directly to parents, puts them in the driver's seat, says you're the decision maker here in terms of what curriculum tools, and that's opened up incredible new opportunities for microschools, a wide variety of what's important to parents, and the market can respond in really creative and amazing ways. And then following that, West Virginia, Florida, South Carolina, Arkansas, Iowa, Indiana, you know, Utah. So we're looking at all of these places where these programs are coming and there's more to come, I think, as you guys know. So it's another, I would say, equally important kind of moment in the, the story of education in America, less visible right now to your average parent, but to me, you know, equal in magnitude. And we're going to see all kinds of opportunities created through these programs that have really open things up for families to be part of the solutions in education. For sure. So now where all are you operating now? Yeah. So I mentioned, you know, we have micro schools in all these places. We've actually, we're recently opening up to private pay. We've kind of resisted that in the past. We just, we didn't want to be only a private pay institution. But if you have, for example, somebody listening in a state like Connecticut, where there's not school choice policies and probably Never will be. I don't want to be overly pessimistic. That's okay. I don't think that's like a stretch. I think you're okay there. (laughs) That parent that's saying, I wish we could do a micro school here. Now they can, and we can do it low cost and just as a private school. So really technically available across the United States, anywhere you are through direct pay. And then we're pushing most of our focus into these universal ESA programs in the States that I just described. So Arizona, Florida, Arkansas, Utah, and these have different start dates and there's layers and caps. And so we're monitoring the details of these policy programs, but we want to be ultimately available for people to start micro schools anywhere that they can do it with ESA funding and open up these opportunities right in their neighborhood, wherever they are. And now is that sort of preferable to you to Prenda? Because I know in the past you've worked through charter school networks and others, you've tried to partner with district schools. I'd be sort of interested in a sort of what you've learned from all of that, because I think I remember distinctly in our last conversation that we had, you were like, listen, I want to work with anybody. We can find a way we can do Prenda anywhere. We can do Prenda with anyone. We're happy to work with folks. Now, I imagine you then tried to do that and maybe it went awesome and maybe it didn't. But so maybe that would be the first question. Like, what have you learned through the various partnerships that you've tried to do? And then sort of like where you think you're going now with that? 
It's a great question, Mike, and totally valid. I will say again, I'm here to work with anybody. Prenda never started out and never will be a kind of political entity of any sort, right? We're about kids. We're about empowering learners. We believe some things about education that I think a lot of people believe from all different places and whether they're inside or outside of the system, whether they're policymakers or administrators or, you know, anywhere. So that said, how do you do it? It was really important to me that we make this available to as many as possible. And that requires working with the system, right? So whatever that system looks like, obviously ESA is the simplest, cleanest way to do that because money just goes to parents, parents use it for a micro school done, right? That's the end of the end of the story. That was not available to a majority of the families we were working with in Arizona or anywhere else when we started and when we talked three years ago. And so what that meant was, you know, we put a lot of our effort into partnerships and we still have partnerships. We still work with charter schools and some districts. We're happy to do it. Like I said, we find like-minded people everywhere and we love working with them to bring these benefits to kids. You know, you asked what I learned. I learned directly about the politics of all this. And I say politics specifically, as opposed to policy, you know, policy is interesting. Politics can just be brutal. Right. And so there were moments where, you know, my name and picture and home address and phone number were circulated and ended up on the wall street journal. That's like a long kind of a long story from 2020. There were moments where I went to school board meetings and just was completely ambushed and, and attacked on false grounds because of folks who, you know, basically want different things that are not seeking the same kind of outcomes that we are. And so having to kind of grapple with those realities, there's a lot of learning there. And then I think even bigger than that, even bigger than the direct opposition is just, I think what's well-meaning, but, you know, thousands of paper cuts in the format of working with these structures and systems, there's just a lot that has to be true. Some of it's directly useful and helpful for kids and for helping them learn and become learners, most of it might not be, right? And most of these rules are, are written for different reasons. And so you have, you know, a situation where you're trying really hard to deliver the type of education you believe kids deserve. But meanwhile, you're required to do things that can undermine that education. And I could talk more about that if you want. That tension has always existed. We're trying to sort of operate inside of the system while being innovative and really focused on what kids need to become empowered learners. There's always been that tension. I think over time that's played out to be difficult, right? And so, like I said, we continue to partner. We've redefined those partnerships. We work kind of in different ways, but yeah, there's a lot of learning in there. I feel terrible because I had completely forgotten about that whole crazy story. <laughs> and then I went back and I was like, did I? And then I remember, I feel even worried because I wrote about it at the time. And I remember now, yes, I mean, there is that saying that no good deed goes unpunished. But no, I remember that was just an absolutely crazy, just a crazy, but it shows, I mean, like, I'll do this. While you were just chatting there, I pulled up, this is what I wrote at the time. And so we don't have to editorialize on any of this, because I imagine this is something you want to put behind you. But this is what I wrote. So these are my words. These are nobody else's and whatever, because I remember this piece because I wrote the opening line to what I wrote was, Kelly Smith is a very nice guy. <laughs> On his Twitter profile, he describes himself to his 400 followers as physics nerd. You probably have more than 400 followers now, but physics nerd, family man, tech entrepreneur, working on the future of K-12 education. And then I tell the whole story of what happened to you. And then I wrote, 
I would love to say that I'm surprised by this development, but I'm not. This has been the standard operating procedure for teachers unions for decades. They brook no dissent. They fight hammer and tongs against every potential option that they do not control. And good people like Kelly Smith get caught in the crossfire, which I think is unfortunately what happened. But perhaps to look into more, <laughs> not to revisit that unpleasantness that took place, you have a new book out. It's called A Fire to Be Kindled. And I would love to know, as someone who's written his fair share, I always think the question that I hope to get to start with is, what is your book about, <laughs> as opposed to diving in? So I'll start with that one, which is, what is your book about? Well, you can go to the title, The Fire to be Kindled is a reference to Plutarch. Those of you education or philosophy nerds that are listening would recognize this. There's this quote, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. This is so profound. I find it to be still one of the most useful ways to kind of compare two competing metaphors for the way learning happens for humans. I think the idea of filling a cup is very appealing to people designing educational systems. It's predictable, something you can just do over and over again. You know exactly if you define the standards just right, you know, you set up the standardized test just right, and you do the lesson plan just right, and you get the kids to be quiet enough and sit in their desks just right, like you can do learning to someone. It's appealing to us as adults. We want to be able to control things the way, you know, Henry Ford controlled an assembly line, but that's actually not the way humans work. And Plutarch understood this 2000 years ago. So I think basically what we say instead is it's a fire to be kindled. This is a process that's chaotic, that's unpredictable. I don't know if you've ever tried, Mike, to start a fire without matches or lighter fluid, but it's a whole ritual, right? You're striking things together and trying to catch sparks on material that's just dry blowing on the You're embers blowing. and hoping and then it doesn't work and then maybe you get a little smoke and you have to start yeah. over again sure i was just talking to some kids that were at a like a camp out a youth camp out a couple weeks ago they said they tried to do this and they spent an hour and a half so just to get a feel for you know you're sitting there forever like trying to get this right and then when it finally strikes and the flame combusts and you can see ignition happen it's this moment of just pure exhilaration it's delight I think I talk in the book about Tom Hanks in the, the movie Castaway. He catches some wood on fire and, and he's just I like, have made fire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like there's this triumphant moment. That's what's going on with real learning. I mean, and you can see the difference between sort of sitting there and someone's pouring water into your brain and actual fire. I mean, that's what is needed, in my opinion, for an individual to live a life. I mean, the subtitle, lead a meaningful life and move humanity forward. I mean, if you're going to really be you, what you're capable of, it's going to require all kinds of challenge and effort and repeated work. This isn't something that's just going to happen to you. You have to take this active ownership stance and everything in the way, not everything, but so much of the way that we structure, you know, school as people have known it is really about filling vessels. And I'm saying, hey, let's think about this instead in terms of lighting fires. That's what the book is for, not necessarily a critique on education. It's just an invitation to individuals to think differently about learning. You know, and I think what's really important in what you just said there is because I've heard, you know, obviously because Plutarch, that's a very famous quotation. And sometimes when people use that, I feel that they are sometimes using it as like an excuse. So people say, you know, yeah, it's not a cup to be filled, it's a fire to be kindled. And it's like, it means like school is supposed to be kind of like touchy feely and it's supposed to be like, you know, because filling a cup is like kids actually, you know, learning stuff. But what I think is so interesting of your take on it is like, no, like kindling a fire 
actually means like challenging students. It means forcing them to wrestle with things and engage in conversation and difficulty. And I think that's, you know, so core to Prenda's model is this like, no, we're actually, gonna, kids are going to learn stuff here. They're going to be challenged. And so, I mean, I think in some ways, the way that I've heard that used for what you're doing is a very useful corrective and actually framing it properly, which I have to imagine, given the ancient who said it, I have a feeling that that's actually what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about sort of a more romantic, like Rousseauian view from the 19th century or whatever. But so I'd be interested in you sort of talking about that, because for some people, most people who are listening have probably heard about Prenda before. But I think this idea that the more I've thought about it, the more I think it's okay of like that students need to wrestle with real questions. They need to be challenged and challenging students is okay. Students failing and learning from that failure is okay. And sort of cosseting students or preventing them from ever experiencing that doesn't actually do them any favors. But I'm wondering like in your experience, like how that has sort of played out, because I imagine that you have to be able to work with students. You have to be able to work with their parents. You have to be able to work with your guides, your educators through this because it's it can be challenging. So like, how have y'all thought through that? How have you worked through that? Yeah, I, there's so much in that question. So let's walk through it. I think there is definitely a difference between an active learner, somebody making the choice and a passive student, a recipient of education. I think most of us, as we just said, are conditioned to do the passive recipient of education kind of approach. In fact, you're rewarded for that because you're not causing the teacher any trouble and you know, you're doing all the homework assignments and you're you know kind of playing by the rules, jumping through the hoops. That was, by the way, the student that I was. That's how my kids were before we pulled them out and put them in micro schools. And what's fascinating about it is it really does fall short of what, you know, this ideal that Plutarch is getting at of fire, right? Of being able to really start a fire. In fact, it's the opposite because you're pouring water all the time. There's no chance of a fire starting. You're drowned out. So what's required for a student, for a young person, and by the way, also for an old person. So if you're an adult listening to this, this is true, I believe universally. What is required to really get to that point where you make a decision to be an empowered learner? And then you get really good at it. You do the reps, you continue, you practice those skills, and you stick with it and don't quit. What's required? Well, one of the things that's required is this idea of connection. And we talk a lot in the book about how learning is a collective and not an individualistic thing. It requires a feeling of safety and confidence and support. Like when you talk about challenging someone, 100% agree. I love challenging kids. I spend a lot of time with youth. I love asking them a question where it forces them out of this, like, I know everything. I have all the answers, kind of roll your eyes mode and into a mode of like, huh, you know, it like shakes them up. It can be a little scary. The only reason that works is because we have an understanding. They know how I feel about them and how I see them. They believe that I see them as a human being, that I honor their value and I see their potential. If that's missing, and that's missing, by the way, for lots and lots and lots of people, if that's missing, none of this, you can't do it, right? All you can do is sort of attack and humans have defense mechanisms that are well evolved over millions of years. So they're very good at shutting off, acting out, like getting out of that situation through kind of fight or flight mechanisms. So we talk about some of the neuroscience of this in the book where it's like, you need that connection. There has to be this unquestionable confidence that this adult that's here with me in charge of my education is actually on my team. They're supporting me. They're working with me on it. Because part of the reason for that is they're going to ask you some hard questions like, what do you want from your life? What do you actually care about? You know, and connect it to that. So now we've talked about how you want to work for NASA on 
rockets, like now it makes sense that I'm going to grapple with math that's hard. And even today when things are difficult, like, because I can connect it to that future, but you can't get, I don't know how many of you have tried to get a child to actually talk to you about what they really want and sincerely do that. Unless they're sure that you're on their team, there's no chance. There's no ability to do that. So connection being such a huge thing. And that was there from the very beginning of Prenda with seven kids around my table, every single guide that we sign up, they're just masters of loving these kids, seeing what's possible with them, like patiently working with them through all their struggles, but definitely providing that kind of human connection and support. So I'm interested to sort of combine what you just said to what we were just talking about before, which was sort of how poorly you were treated by the sort of status quo in education. So how do you see our existing education system being able to sort of reorient in this way? Is this the type of stuff that's going to have to happen in new institutions that are built outside of the traditional structures? Or is this something that you think that educators or schools or school districts within the traditional system are able to do? This is a hard question because it's a, a see the future question. I will say I've definitely seen individuals do this inside of different structures. In fact, we have micro schools on campus in district schools. I've seen people step up, both you know, certified teachers, part of unions that have said, I love these kids. I'm going to provide this type of connection and support and personalization. And there's all these things. Now you get into the model and you start talking about what does it mean to personalize education, to do things by mastery instead of by time we have all these structural limitations. And so I think a lot of educators feel a little bit constrained as do the kids by sort of piles of statute, right? Going back hundreds of years and, and that's heavy, right? There's a lot that they have to kind of work against to create that bubble of actual real empowered learning going on. But I fully believe that it can, and it is happening inside of structures. Is there enough of it? Is it systematically you know, are we there? Are we on the path to get there? No, I don't think so. I think we need a lot more of it. And that's really what I want to do is elevate this conversation and invite more people to see themselves, especially people who have said, I'm going to devote my life to helping young people learn is let's look hard at what that means and what's there for them. And then this is where I do run into a lot of people through Prenda where it's, it's like, that's what they were trying to do. They felt like they couldn't do it. And they leave, you know, maybe a different environment and create their own environment. And I think maybe that's an interesting and pretty exciting possibility as you kind of get more options out there. So then it can happen both ways, right? It can happen within and without the kind of structures of the system as we know it today. And I'm also interested in, obviously, Prenda are micro schools. So the role that size plays in this, I think if we sort of continue the metaphor, you know, starting a small fire is easier than starting a giant fire, right? Now, small fires can become giant fires, but if you had to set out to do one, you said, oh, I just need to get three matchsticks lit, or I need to light a bonfire, like I don't know, they used to have a Texas A&M or something. So I'm curious in your thoughts on that one, of the sort of role of size in all of this. Is this kind of deep support, that true relationship between adults and children, where, as you talked about, this trust that exists, the support along with the challenge, the personalization, like, are there just kind of upper bounds on size? Like, can an adult only do that for so many kids because of the depth that's required? Like, is the size part of this? Is it scalable? How do you see that? Well, this is why, yeah, I believe it is. I kind of got to the number 10 through my 
past my entry into education was these after school coding programs that I ran at the library. And there were days where I had fewer than 10 kids and I could connect and know their names and see them all. And there were days where I had more than 10 kids. And so it really starts to feel like a group to manage at a certain point. And I think any educator can tell you this, like there's kind of a size at which like I've got a class, right? And we've got to queue up for walking from point A to point B and we've got to do classroom management techniques and we've got to clap, do these like special claps to get everyone to be quiet. And like those things are all necessary when you have a big group. When you have a smaller group of engaged learners, I mean, your point is absolutely right. The fire has to be an individual fire. There's no such thing as a bonfire immediately. It's like, I start with, you know, my questions, who I am, my gifts, my abilities, my desires out of life, and an adult that can truly connect with me and help me see that and connect it to the work that I'm being asked to put in. Now I can actually have a chance of getting to that point, but it has to be personal. And so it's challenging. I'm, I'm sure you have educators listening to the podcast. Like, they're like, yeah, I'd love to do this. I just read Rick Hess's book. He talks about being a math teacher at the junior high level. And he said 150 kids a day, right? There's no, literally no way, right? Even knowing 150 kids' names is a stretch. If you can do that, that's amazing. But to get one layer deeper with any of those kids, it would be so hard, right? And I, miraculously, there are educators doing it every day, but it's the exception, not the rule. It's really hard. It's set up in a way that's very difficult for those people to be successful. Well, Kelly Smith, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. For everyone listening, the book is A Fire to Be Kindled. And I stand by my comments that I wrote three years ago. Kelly Smith is a nice guy. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Well, I hope all of you enjoyed that as much as I did. I think I say that a lot. <laughs> I look back on the whole reason this podcast is called What's Up is because What's Up is a kind of vocal tick of mine that I use a lot. And I think, I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did is another one of those vocal ticks. But you know what? We're just going to go with it. You know, Kelly's such an interesting guy. He's such a passionate guy. I had completely forgotten about the whole teacher's union created like a dossier on him that had his home address and all these things. The Wall Street Journal covered it. Like I said, I wrote about it at the time. So if you could Google either of those, you know, he was treated tremendously shabbily for, you know, if you've now heard this podcast, you've heard our previous podcast, obviously just like a wonderful, passionate person trying to help kids did not deserve to be treated that way. It was totally wrong, but God bless him. He still has the same positive attitude. He's still trying to solve these problems. And I think children will benefit as a result of that. As always, I'm always looking out for new folks to talk about, not just people who've started Incredible School Networks, though they are certainly great fodder for the podcast, but folks who are involved in state or local education policy, advocates, parents, anybody who has something interesting to say about education, I'm happy to find out what's up with them. You know, I want to thank our podcast producer, Jacob Vincent, as always, who's going to edit all of this together and make it sound great. And I look forward to chatting with all of you again on another edition of Ed Choice Chats.